everybody. This is Chris. And Kathy. We wanted to take a minute to thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate every listener and are grateful for this platform. Please help us share our vision by subscribing to our show through your favorite streaming app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. Check out our ever-growing list of affiliates and sponsors. Simply go to the show notes for information and links. And be sure to use our promo code PETPOD22, that's P-E-T-P-O-D-2-2, on checkout to receive your discount from our affiliates. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Alon Landa, CEO of MedcoVet, and I'm a proud sponsor of Petability. We decided to partner with Chris and Kathy because, like them, we want to empower all pet owners who are trying to do the most for their pets. At MedcoVet, we specialize in advanced home laser therapy for pets. Laser therapy is a safe and effective treatment for common conditions like arthritis and wounds, and it relieves pain for most conditions caused by inflammation. With MedcoVet, pet owners can perform this treatment at home while receiving support from experienced clinicians. If you think your pet would benefit from healing at home, visit MedcoVet.com, and one of our clinical experts will work with you to determine if home laser therapy is the right fit for you and your pet. Tell them PetAbility sent you. Welcome to PetAbility. I'm your host, Kathy Simon, Certified Veterinary Technician and Certified Canine Rehabilitation Practitioner. And I'm your host, Chris Cranston, Licensed Physical Therapist and Small Animal Physical Rehabilitationist. Our podcast provides interviews and information to help your pets live their best lives. Good morning, Kathy. How are you today? Good morning, Chris. I'm doing fantastic today. We have another great guest on our show. Today, we're going to be talking with Bethany Brown from Saco River Wildlife Center. And this is really cool because we were introduced to Bethany through our new friend, Lauren Kennedy of the Tilly Project, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a resource for connecting owners with end-of-life pet photographers. So if you haven't listened to that show, uh, be sure to go back and listen to that. And, And I love it when one awesome interview leads to another. It's my favorite. And so the timing of this is kind of weird because I had an experience I want to share with you guys last just last night. I went outside with my dog and as I'm scanning the yard with my flashlight, I catch the eyes of something in a tree (laughs) on the edge of our property watching me. And it was a possum. Um, I know, I know. And he froze. Of course, that's his thing. He froze and he pretended not to see me. And, uh, but I know he did. And it was just so cool to see him. I've never seen a possum in our yard before. This is my first time seeing a possum in our yard. And I certainly know they exist out there, but I, I've never, just never seen one. I and he was up in a, I know, he was so cool. He was just sitting up in a tree, just watching. They're much bigger I, than I always thought they were. Right, much bigger than I thought they were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just got me thinking about the importance of this possum, who I will now refer to as Stuart, because that's, that's what I've named him, okay? <laughs> and, the, the, and I was thinking about the importance of this possum and the importance of his life and how important he is to the environment and the ecosystem. I mean, he keeps my yard clear of unwanted pests by eating snails and slugs and insects and ticks. And, and Chris, did you know that a single possum, it's estimated they could eat over 5,000 ticks from the environment every year. Isn't wow. That, I know. That's incredible. It, it's nature's pest control, right? And the importance of that, of course, is one of the biggest importances of that is that ticks spread Lyme disease. And here's your possum out there eating those ticks. So, so I thanked him, you know, and left him to his business of keeping the ecosystem functional and contributing to germination and seed dispersal and soil generation and pest control. And I thanked him because these are all the things that allows humans to thrive. And that's why cohabitation with these animals is so important because we rely on these animals and we should respect them. And we should respect what they contribute to the environment. And we should protect them like our lives depend on it. So I'm really, really excited to talk to Bethany about wildlife rehabilitation and what that looks like, why it's so important, and what to do if we come in contact with an injured or, or orphaned you know, wild animal. 
Bethany founded the, the Saco River Wildlife Center in Limington, Maine in 2015 with the goal of rehabilitation and releasing wild animals back into their natural habitat. The Saco River Wildlife Center cares for raccoons, squirrels, porcupines, possums, skunks, weasels, fox, and bats. Although they are located in Limington, they are a vital resource to wildlife and communities across the state of Maine. And in 2022, took in close to 800 animals. So I'm really excited to talk with Bethany today. So please welcome Bethany Brown to the show. Welcome, Bethany. Oh, thank you. Um, it's nice to be here. I've wanted to talk to a wildlife rehabilitator for a long time. And when Lauren said what she she does and for her her real work, besides the Tilly Project, I was like, yes, can we interview her? This is just fantastic. How did you get started in wildlife rehab? And what inspired you to start your own rehabilitation center? Well, I always, I've always loved wildlife and I've always loved animals. I actually grew up on a very small farm here in Leamington, which is actually down the street for, from where I live now. Um, so I didn't move very far. I actually right out of uh, high school, I went to college for business, worked in that for uh, quite a while. And then um, one of the jobs I was at did a big layoff for all the, the workers in my department. So I figured it was time for me to go back to college. So at that point, I was taking a class and they suggested that we do a job shadow with something at a place where we really wanted to um, possibly pursue as a career. So I was thinking, you know, vet tech or something like that, because I really wanted to work with animals. And when I spoke to my vet back then, I explained to her what I was hoping to do. And she connected me to a wildlife um, facility down in York, Center for Wildlife. So I started, uh, I went down there, I started volunteering, fell in love with wildlife and wildlife rehab, stayed there for a uh, I'm thinking almost three years. And then I left there and went to another rehabber because I wanted to know how to rehab other animals like the rabies vector species and the bigger animals that they didn't do there. So I fell in love with little raccoons and woodchucks and skunks. And uh, my mentor, uh, Carol Widowson, she encouraged me to go get my permit. So I probably volunteered for a good six years, maybe even seven years before I finally took the plunge to, to get my own permit. And I did. And then um, she encouraged me even more to go get my uh, nonprofit status. And it, it was kind of cool because in the first year, I think we took in maybe maybe 20 animals, that, like the whole first year. And then from that year on, uh, it just grew and grew and grew faster than I ever imagined. Can I just say how much I love that we have the background of, of the birds while we're doing this wildlife rehabilitation podcast? Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> in case anybody was wondering, those are birds in the background. <laughs> yeah, I rescued uh, my first bird actually after I got started in, in um, wildlife rehab. So now I'm up to three birds. And I just want the audience again to, to realize that this this sanctuary was founded in 2015. You had 20 animals that first year. And in 2022, you had 800. That is crazy town. Oh, yes. Yeah, it, it grew much faster than I could have ever imagined. I mean, I, I figured maybe 10 years, we would get up to, you know, 900 to 1,000 animals. And it literally happened in like six years. And then 2020 was like, I know it was, I know it was sad because of COVID and the pandemic and it was scary, but it was a blessing to us because some of the most amazing people we've ever met and we've ever had joined our team and mm. they haven't left yet. And they've just helped big build it. And um, it's just such an amazing team we have now. That's great. Yeah. So what, what is wildlife rehabilitation? How does that differ from what Kathy and I do as physical rehabilitators for pets, primarily dogs and, and cats and other domestic animals? Well, it's very similar in some in some areas where we take in animals from, from the general public. Most of the animals that we get, obviously, are um, not something you want to keep as a pet, but we do have those instances where people do keep animals as pets until they realize that this was a bad decision. And then we end up with them. 
uh, doesn't happen as often, which is good because it would be not very good if people were keeping wild animals as pets. But what we do as far as wildlife rehab, rehabilitation, we bring in sick, injured, orphaned wildlife uh, and bring them in and rehab them. So uh, a lot of our patients come in from basically people finding them in their attic or you know hitting them with a car or mm. a, a pet getting them or it could be just with possums we get a lot of frostbit possums wow. uh, they don't they don't do very well in the winter time with uh, with the cold so we do right now we actually have one possum that is it came in with frostbite on the end of his tail on his ear and one of his toes but luckily we caught it really early. So he's going to be totally fine. I want to hear more about this because like, how did whoever that brought in this possum know that it had frostbite and, and know that it needed help, you know, like you can provide. So I don't think she realized that it had frostbite. She saw an injury, injury to the tail that was bleeding and it had infection. She, she mm. explained to me what was going on. I won't, I won't say the, um, the gory stuff, but uh, she, she was concerned and she was able to contain it into a box and oh could give gosh. us a call. Yeah, it, so possums are pretty cool. Most of the time, if you approach them or do anything, they get really scared and they play dead. And it's something that is is automatic for them. They have no control over it. It's not a medical condition. They didn't faint. They actually involuntarily sort of just like lay down and play dead. That's the term then when they say playing possum, yep. right? That's where it came from, like to play dead, play possum. So she got it in a box and she gave us a call. And unfortunately, it was really late at night and she it was a snowstorm. So she ended up bringing him the next day uh, and he... You know, I, I checked him over. The way she made it sound was that he was probably not going to make it. But as soon as we got him in, we gave him a full exam. And he just had a little bit of its, his tail frostbitten, which which will die off and then fall off. So he'll end up no problem at all. Nice. And his toes just had a little bit on it and one of his ears. So his ear is okay. If he, if he lost his ear, he would be totally fine. Well, and this speaks to the importance of taking it to, you know, an animal to an expert that can identify because we as lay people have no idea. Something that looks life-threatening could be something very simple like frostbite or vice versa. You know, we could think, this is Mm -hmm. no problem. And then it's some horrific, you know, disease or something. So. Yep. We get that, those uh, types of things a lot. People will keep uh, like baby squirrels or um, even baby raccoons. Some people keep those uh, thinking that they can raise them. And by the time, you know, they if they don't feed them the proper nutrition, then they can basically pass away from improper nutrition or they can develop something called metabolic bone disease, which is horrific because it's a very painful disease and it can cause it can cause death. So the nutrition is is very, very important when we talk about um, babies, especially. It's not a good idea to keep wildlife as as pets. Um, no, not at all. It never, it never goes. It never goes well for them. It's so important to bring a wild animal to somebody who knows what they're doing. It made me kind of think as we were talking, and we were, I was introducing you. I was talking about this possum I saw in my yard. And how I thanked him for, you know, his importance in the ecosystem and his importance for keeping my yard bug free and tick free. And I think that might be a question that some listeners might have. Like, why why would it be important to pick this possum up and bring him to the rehabilitator and, and save him and rescue him? What is their importance to the world and to the ecosystem? Very, very true. They, they have a, such a huge uh, importance to us. And it's amazing to think that just... 20 years ago, there was never possums up here. It, they're kind of an, we call them yard angels because they have such amazing qualities for, for people's backyards. As you said, they eat thousands of ticks uh, and because they're, they're a very clean animal, which a lot of people don't understand how clean they are. They're constantly grooming. They're similar to a cat, just groom, groom, groom all the time. And that's how they end up eating all of those ticks because they're very slow moving through the, the woods and the fields and stuff. And if they get ticks on them, they just consume thousands of them because a lot of the other animals we get in from babies or or just orphaned or anything like that, they're covered in ticks because they don't have their mom there anymore to clean them up and groom them and get the ticks off. Or if, if we get a debilitated one in, they're covered with ticks. Possums, we very rarely ever see a tick on them when they come in, whether they're babies or adults injured. It's just amazing. They just, they're very, very clean animals. 
sometimes possums get a bad rap too because people don't find them aesthetically appealing. Right. And, yep. You know, and and it's like I don't know. I just have love for for everything, and you know, it it's not what's on the outside; it's what's on the inside, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, nice. and you were saying too that you know it's never a good idea to you know take in wildlife and so forth, but it's actually illegal, right? Yes, it is. Big, so big deal. Very, yeah, there's very few species that anybody can can take in. I believe, and don't quote me on this, but there might be a couple of turtles you can take in as a pet. But I highly um, do not recommend taking any any wildlife, no matter what. Like as I said, the nutrition is something that you have to know, you have to research, and a lot of the stuff out there on on the internet is incorrect. We've had people come in with baby squirrels and they've said, well, we fed them almond milk and almond milk is actually very toxic to little oh, squirrels geez. or a cow. Uh, yeah. Cow's milk is very toxic to any wildlife. We definitely, you could kill um, a baby by giving them any cow's milk. So e- even if you read it, oh, we also had somebody bring in some baby squirrels, this lovely, uh, she was, you know, she meant well, she was a really lovely woman with her daughter and she had let her daughter, her 11 year old daughter, take care of three baby squirrels after two passed away she brought in the third one because she you know she knew something was wrong they had been feeding them condensed milk which is extremely high in sugar and very 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 bad and unfortunately i wasn't able to save any of them so i talked to her and and she found a website where condensed milk is what they said to feed and I, I gave her, you know, I, I talked to her and explained to her that leaving it up to the experts um, and everything on the internet, you you can't always trust. So. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and Bethany, this is why we wanted you on the show, because I just think that, like you said, people have good intentions and, you know, we just don't know. So we want to get good information, you know, from you as our guests and know, you know, be able to sh- educate, because I know that's one of your missions as well, is to educate the public so that we can do the right thing. And then, you know, we're talking about like this importance of the ecosystem and and so forth. I went to a turtle uh, rehabilitation seminar by the like wildlife and fisheries in New Hampshire a couple of years ago. And, you know, turtles live so long. And we talk about the importance in the ecosystem. This woman who was the primary speaker, she's like, every turtle matters. If you remove that, yeah, from you know, its environment, it can just disrupt so many things because they live, you know, 30, 40 years in the wild oftentimes. I think it's important to let our audience know, like, what, what, what are the steps? What do they do when they find an injured or orphaned animal? And I think you guys said that you do mostly raccoons and, and possums and skunks and so forth. Should we pick them up? So uh, the majority of the calls we get, um, a lot of people have already collected the animal, but there's a lot of calls we get where they don't know, they, they see an animal, they're unsure if it's injured or orphaned. So the best thing to do is as soon as you see an animal, let's let's do an orphan squirrel. So if somebody sees a little squirrel in their yard and and you're unsure if it's orphaned, the first thing you do is look for any adult squirrels um, that's around and see if there's any other squirrels. One thing I can tell you is a lot of orphan animals, if they've been alone for quite a while, they will run up to anything or anybody in search for help. So when somebody calls me, I have this little squirrel that keeps trying to climb up my leg and it, you know, it keeps following me around. I immediately say, yes, that's that's an orphan. I tell them to get thick gloves and a box and if they can put it into the box and then search their gra- the grounds for more. Because usually if there's one orphan, there's going to be at least three or four more. If it's an injured adult squirrel or something like that, a lot of people will call me before they handle it, depending on where it is, because adult squirrels can bite very, very hard. Um, so I always tell them if they're comfortable with containing it, there's ways you can do it without ever touching the animal. If the animal is not mobile um, and it's not, an, um, let's say, an RVS or a rabies vector species, if you take a, like a tote and then the cover and you can scoop it in without touching it, that would be okay. What I don't recommend is anybody going to pick up, say, it a raccoon that's been hit by a car or if they find it just a sick raccoon in their yard that's an animal that i i highly recommend or a skunk do not go and just pick up contact us first and we'll ask you a series of questions um and then we we either send somebody out or we just tell them to observe so i think that's that's a good point i mean safety 
for the human is is a big concern as well. Some of these animals carry rabies. And so it's really important to like very careful about handling any type of, especially raccoons, but certainly any animal that could bite you. Um, oh, yeah. Be problematic. And, and boy, yeah, they have teeth. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So we get such a wide variety of calls. Um, sometimes I get calls on baby birds that they say is, is a baby bird when it's actually a fledgling. So I tell them to observe. A lot of times with fledglings, what they do is they have to leave the nest and then they go on the ground for a day or two and mom and dad will still feed them. Um, but that's the most dangerous time for a baby bird because we have a lot of predators like the cats and and other animals out and about that are willing to to grab a little baby bird just running around on the ground. So most of the time, I get a lot of calls on fledglings during that season. But then we also get a lot of calls on injured deer, um, injured foxes, or orphan foxes, or people think that they're they're orphaned. They never see mom there, but mom's you know off hunting, and then she comes back when they don't see her. So we get a, we get such a wide range of calls. Uh, we also get a lot of calls on um, on birds, which we don't do birds here, but we get a lot of the calls on birds. Well, I think it's so hard emotionally for people that love animals to just leave something alone. Yeah, right. resist that urge with all your might, right? Yep. And that's the majority of the reasons why we get a lot of animals in that don't really need to be here. Some people will find, you know, the baby, it's majority of baby squirrels, somebody will, will find and, and they'll bring it in. We get a lot of squirrels that don't need to be taken. Raccoons don't happen as often. A fox pups will happen. People will assume that fox kits are or orphaned and they'll bring them in. I'm trying to, oh, fawns are another one. A lot of people will assume that a fawn is orphaned um, because mom only comes back like twice, two or three times to feed, and then she leaves the baby alone. Um, bunny rabbits is another one that we get a lot of calls on as far as people are like, I found a baby bunny or I found a baby bunny nest. The moms usually come back a couple of times a day to feed and then leaves them there so that because they don't have any scent on them. So that way they're protected. Yes. I learned that because I had a bunny's nest in my, the corner of, of my house. It was very safe um, because it was all kind of fenced off, but the bunny could get underneath. It was where like the air conditioning units were and the yep. landscapers when they were doing cleanup in the spring found it and he told me about it and you're exactly right Bethany that you know I never hardly saw the adults around but I learned that the reason they're not there is because the adult rabbits have scent and the babies don't and so they don't want to bring their scent and attract predators to the nest so that's why they only come back a couple times to feed as necessary right yep Oh, I thought that was just so cool. Yeah, we, we actually, it's funny because there's certain species we do and certain species we don't, but there's a lot of species that are kind of, if there's nobody else, then we will take them. We're just not as much of an expert on certain ones like bunnies. We, I have a, a wonderful friend that's a rehabber a little bit, probably an hour north. So if we get any bunnies, we send them all to her because she actually has a nice big bunny pen uh, for when they go outside. Chris, I well, like your point of... Um, you know, trying to resist picking these animals up because, you know, you see a baby bunny and they're so cute and, you know, you don't know where mom is. But also remember that that because they're wild, they don't want you to pick them up and coddle them and coo them and hold them like your dog or your cat might like. That's very frightening for them. It's very traumatic. So you have to take that in consideration as well. If, if simply even picking up an animal is terrifying and frightening for them. Um, a lot of species don't do well at all. Uh, rabbits and, and bunnies, um, snowshoe hares, they can die of stress very, very easily along with fawns. So we stress to people all the time, do not pick up them. If you, you just monitor them and, you know, just, just try to monitor, try to put a game camera or something on them so you can monitor them constantly. Because if you do bring them in, this the stress alone can actually cause them to to die. So, well, and that's kind of a nice segue too into how do you keep them wild? How do you prevent, you know, these animals from, you know, imprinting and relying on people for their food sources and things like that? I'd, I'd love you to explain that as part of your effort to release them back to the wild. So the good news is the majority of our, our patients come in, and even if they're infants when they come in, uh, they all wild up very, very nicely. 
uh, squirrels especially. So squirrels really, really do well wilding up along with possums because possums just, they have this thing where they just really do not like people. And they're, they're, they're very afraid. So, so when we get a lot of animals in, say we get in uh, a couple uh, two-day-old raccoons, you know, we have to handle them. We have to uh, clean them. We have to do everything for months before we can put them outside. Well, I would say weeks before we put them outside. And then they get a lot of interaction here because, you know, you have to clean them. You have to feed them. You have to assist them to go to the bathroom. But as soon as they can start eating on their own, we transition them as early as possible into solid solid foods or eating out of a dish. We'll do a mush bowl with, with some formula and some other ingredients and teach them how to eat out of a dish. And then as soon as they can start eating out of the dish, we, we try to stop interacting a lot. So we don't have to as much. We just have to put their food in, they make a mess, we clean it up, and then we give them plenty of enrichment to, you know, to keep themselves occupied. And we try to get them outside as early as possible. As soon as they can climb, as soon as they can walk around and eat on their own, we get them outside and we put in as much nature as possible instead of like human toys and things. They, they get a lot of human toys inside because it's just something easily that we can clean and we can, you know, rotate and they don't get bored. But as soon as they go get outside, we do things like rotten logs, um, worms, leaf litter, uh, trees to climb. Um, we even go get uh, fish and crayfish for them to hunt so that they can get used to the prey that they're going to have to find out there. Um, so we throw in a lot of natural diets and just a lot of nature in all their outside enclosures. And I feel that that gives them the best opportunity to feel wild and, and they get some of their natural foods and that's that's with raccoons and with you know woodchucks and skunks and each animal we try to find their um, we try to give them as much natural enrichment and diet as possible i mean it's not always possible to give them the the complete diet with nature stuff but um we throw in quite a few uh natural items for them to get used to and i know skunks love grubs so a lot of times i'll be outside digging up grubs just to give our little skunks you were meant for this bethany (laughs) (laughs) tell us about the bats oh so um in maine there's four of us that can that have um the ability to rehab bats so i i take in um adult bats or juvenile bats um if they if we get infant um, baby bats. I usually have them sent to another rehabber who specializes in the babies um, because we we take in more of the raccoons and the foxes and the fishers and stuff. So we all kind of split the duties a little. Um, the, the cool part is we actually have eight species of bats in Maine, um, which before I started rehabbing, I never knew. So it's pretty interesting to find out that we had all of these different species of bats in Maine. The ones that we see the most in wildlife rehab are the big browns. They're the ones most commonly found in and around humans. The little browns, uh, I've had one so far in the seven years I've been doing this. Um, And we've had two hoary bats in the seven years I've been here. So I think this is a good time too to talk maybe about some of the the myths because people Mm. are commonly terrified of bats. And I think that that comes from vampire lore yeah. and, and all of that and you know and the whole thing about they're going to get in your hair and they're going to tangle up <laughs> in your hair and you're never going to get rid of them and they're going to attack you so bethany can you talk about like the personalities of the bats and what the real story is sure so the bats that we've gotten in uh, we've gotten in like i said a wide variety some some years we get in two or three some years we can get up to 30 it all depends on on the winter um and what people are doing in their homes or in the build in buildings and stuff. The the big browns are pretty cool. They're they're really feisty, but they're not they're not overly aggressive. They I just think they ca- I call them sky puppies because they're just so they if you look at them up close they just look like a little puppy <laughs> with sharp teeth. Because <laughs> uh, big browns is about the only one that I I bring in. For for rehab, the the uh, hoary well, bat what, is the only other one. They don't they don't want to fly at people, right? They don't well, want. That was going to be my question. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes, yes. So no. Um, what happens? So say you're um out by a fire and you're having a campfire at night, and when the things go up, the bats just automatically assume that anything that is going up in the air that 
they, they'll swoop down. So a lot of people get kind of freaked out because if they're around a campfire or something, the, the bats will be swooping down because they'll assume that the things going up from the fire is, is bugs flying around. The other time that we had, um, if, the, if a bat gets into a house, um, a lot of people freak out because they think, like you said, that they're going to get in their hair or they'll fly at them and dart at them. Each one has a, has a huge personality all of their own. One year we had, like, when we go down the line to feed them, I'll, I'll reach in to grab the dish and then the, the little bat sitting in his dish waiting for us to, to feed us, to put his food in. Um, some of them, they come up to the front because it's funny because we have to teach bats how to eat out of a dish here because bats always, you know, they fly around to eat right. their food. So when right. they get here, they have no idea that there's a dish of food there to eat. So we actually have to teach them. So what I'll do is I'll grab a worm and I'll tap the dish and then I'll give it to the bat. And once they figure that out, most of the bats will learn that the, the dish is where all the food is. So a lot of them will be waiting beside the dish, in the dish, and a lot of them do really well eating on their own. But we also get some that just never learn or just never, they're, they're rebellious. They just don't want to eat out of a dish. So we have to sit there and hand feed them. And it's really cute because they'll be kind of hiding underneath or behind um, a cloth that we have for them to hide behind. And they'll come out just enough with their little nose, kind of like sniffing and looking for the worm. So we'll give them the worm and then they'll kind of run back eat the worm and then come back again. Um, they, they just, they have huge personalities, each one of them. And the hoary bat is, that's one of my favorite bats of all time. They're just it's so beautiful. It's so interesting that they have in, like individual personalities. Oh yes, <laughs> so they cool. do. Sure. I got a bat in one time that somebody accidentally sprayed with spray foam. Uh, insulation, yeah. but he caught it in time. I mean, it still got covered and it, it's stuff that hardens. Yeah. So it took yeah. me about 16 hours um, to sit there and just slowly chisel and, and get all of this stuff off. The only thing that saved the bat is that the gentleman wiped his face so that the bat had nothing on his, on his face so he could breathe. Wow. So I would keep him hydrated because the stuff was like drying. When I got down to just about all of it, he had a big chunk on his back. I would, I heated up some coconut oil and it was just warm enough. And I would put the coconut oil on the, on his skin because he was so dry. Yeah. Well, the next day, the coconut oil had caused the stuff to turn to like rubber and fall right off. He was such a cute little bat. Um, <laughs> he was pretty much naked because he lost his fur to that. Yeah. He also lost his ears. And he would, he would just come out and he wanted to eat. He would grab the worm and then he'd run back under his little, his little hut thing with the, the fabric. And then when he was done with that one, he'd come right back out and he would squawk at you. He'd be like, I'm hungry. You need to feed me now. <laughs> you make it worms, lady. <laughs> well, Bethany, I, I want to say that I'm very proud because I put up a bat house at my previous home. I don't think I got any bats, but the reason I did that is because I did learn, just like with the possum, how many bugs, particularly mosquitoes. So again, it's like nature's, you know, anti-mosquito animal. And uh, it's, it's like, I don't know, like 200 mosquitoes a night or something that, that they eat. It's like some huge number per bat. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They, they eat. Um, so there's some bats that can eat up to, let's see, up to 600 to 1,000 mosquitoes or other kinds of insects in one hour. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I underestimated yep. that. As far as animals that carry diseases like rabies, are bats our biggest risk um, when it comes to, to rehabilitating wildlife? Are they the biggest concern or the raccoons or possums? So in Maine, bats can be a, a big risk, but the good thing is I am vaccinated and um, handling, we, once we get them in, we weigh them, we check them over, we do a full exam, and then we put them in their enclosure. You really don't have to handle them at all after that, except for periodic weighs. And that's really good. So they're, they're kind of not a high risk species here in rehab. Raccoons, foxes, the skunks, I would say they would probably be the bigger risks because they have the ability to bite and you have to get into their enclosure and you have to clean. So you have to make sure that they're okay with you on one side while you're cleaning. And in Maine um, and most of New England, 
right down to Florida too. Raccoon rabies is the biggest risk for rabies. So, and then that would be a skunk, fox, raccoons, bats, and Maine also has woodchucks listed as um, the rabies vector species of highest concern. Hey, Chris, I'd like to take a little break right here, if you don't mind, to uh, mention our affiliates, Dr. Busby's Toe Grips, a dog's best life box.com, and our friends at Heads Up Pets Water Collar. For information and links, simply go to our show notes. Remember to use the promo code PETPOD22 at checkout. That's P-E-T-P-O-D-2-2, all capital letters, to receive your 10% discount on orders. So, Bethany, I think it's interesting because, you know, you said, like, the raccoons are really high on that list. And I remember, you know, I lived in a suburb, Arlington, um, outside of Boston, and I look out my back door and I see three raccoons up in trees during the daytime. And I'm like, you know, oh my gosh, they must be sick. Why am I seeing them during the day? Aren't they nocturnal? (laughs) So I call our local animal control officer. She's like, no, they're just sleeping. They sleep in the trees at night during the day. I'm sorry. They sleep in the trees during the day. And I'm like, oh, so I also think it's important that we don't just assume that some of these normal behaviors are abnormal just due to our lack of knowledge. Right. And, yes. you know, don't freak out and, you know, and, and so forth. So, yes, raccoons do sleep in trees during the day, right? Uh, just because you see an animal out during the daytime doesn't necessarily mean that there's an issue uh, unless, they're they're acting, unless they're acting strangely, you know, or, or yep. then then you call your animal control officer. But just a skunk walking through your yard is just a skunk walking through your yard sometimes. <laughs> yep. We actually get a lot of calls. Well, we used to get a lot more calls. I think it's been, I think there's been a lot of education on, done on that because the calls are have been a lot less, but we used to get calls. There's a raccoon curled up on my, um, oh, this is a good one in Portland. Um Second story, balcony. There's a raccoon curled up on my balcony. Um, Should I worry? And generally, I'll tell them to send me photos, send me video, just so I can, you know, take a look and see what's really going on. Um, But a lot of times, especially in, in, you know, more urban... um, yeah, more urban areas, mm-hmm. they just find anywhere to sleep. So, and there's nothing wrong with a raccoon. It just took a break. It just needed a place to sleep for a little while. Yeah, um, yeah. And we get calls like, oh, there's a skunk that's walking. Is it normal to see a skunk out during the day or a fox? Um, and I just explain to people that, yes, it's very, very normal. Um, they're, even though we consider them nocturnal, um, most of them, you'll see just about anything out there in the day. And for us, we're just pushing up against their environment constantly. Yeah. And so it's not surprising that occasionally a raccoon needs to sleep on your balcony because yeah. we push them out of their environment and we've pushed them yep. out of their habitat. In some areas, um, I've noticed after over the, you know, over the past 50 years um, here that the, the wildlife has changed drastically. I remember on this road, we would, you could just take a drive down the street and most of it was dirt. Um, and you see a moose just kind of walking down the street anytime during the day and evening and it would be normal. Mm-hmm. Um, there would be a bear, you know, um, out back or, or somewhere like that and it would be normal. And now it is rare for me to, I haven't seen a moose on this road in 20 years. Um, I also have seen maybe one bear and that's it. And it's just, we are, there's so many more houses built up. And I know that the field out behind me, they're changing that into a solar um, solar panel area. Mm-hmm. So that kind of cuts down on the territory for the wildlife. Um, so yeah, we're just pushing them right out of, out of their own territory. So they're, we're seeing them more because they don't have a place to go. So the shed looks great. You know, underneath the shed is perfect for a woodchuck, a skunk, or a fox. Um, the attic or, or something like that is great for a raccoon or a squirrel because they don't really have the area that they used to have. I always encourage people to build nest boxes, whether it's a squirrel nest box, a raccoon nest box, bird houses, anything you can build and put um, in trees or in an area out in your yard where, where you don't need to go or um, it's not going to be disturbed at all. Um, because I get a lot of calls on raccoons in, in urban areas. Uh, a lot of orphans, um, they're just walking around because their mom either got trapped and relocated or was killed Aww. by a car. So 
yeah, I encourage people to to build as many nest boxes and just spread them out as much as possible. That'll deter them. That'll give them a different option than people's garages under, well, under the shed. Under the shed is something different because I don't think you can build something for a woodchuck or a skunk. Mm. So, <laughs> But it's one of the ways we can help support the wildlife in our yard by simply yep. giving them some place to go. Yeah. Yeah, and not only are we taking away their habitat and fragmenting the habitat because a lot of them roam and they can't, you know, we may put, you know, a highway or something across their natural migration, you know, area or what have you. Um, but but we're just cutting down trees, you know, like aesthetically, it's like, you know, your neighbor may, oh, I hate that old tree, you know, I'm gonna cut it down. And yep. who knows how much wildlife that was supporting, you know, in in that tree and on that tree. And right. so, yep. you know, every tree matters too. So, yep, I, that's that's another thing. Um, like you said, with people cutting down trees so often, um, put up alternatives. Um, and I totally understand. You know, a tree if it's if it's dangerous or if it's uh, dead, people just don't want to see it there or they don't want it there. Put up alternatives. If you have a fence. Um, put up some squirrel nest boxes on the fence or some bird bo uh, boxes on the fence um, or other trees out back. Our our woods are littered with a variety of uh, small mammal nest boxes. So, <laughs> and it's always cool to see them because you never know what's going to live in there. We built a, we put up a squirrel nest box next to one of our um, enclosures. And one year there was squirrels in it. The next year there was birds in there. <laughs> so you just never know what's going to use the, the birds the them, the burst through the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Bethany, I'm interested to know what release looks like for these animals once they have been rehabilitated and they're ready to go back into the wild. Do you slowly transition them or do you do take them to the where you found them and re-release them? How what does that look like? So um, with the with the property I have, I don't really release much here because it's um, it's only three acres. So we do release squirrels and chipmunks and things like that here. So what happens then is uh, when they're outside, as I said, we just give them as much possible nature, um, trees, um, acorns, um, lichen, just anything that they can they can use um, and that they'll eat. With squirrels, what we do is we'll just we have little doors, tiny little holes or doors on their enclosures, and we'll open the door and we'll let them come and go for as long as they need. Uh, usually the max is about two weeks, and then they just go off and find their find a different den or a different nest box that we've put out there, uh, which is really cool. And then we'll supplement them for about a week with some food just scattered around. Uh, the other animals like foxes, skunks, raccoons, uh, fishers, we usually have to capture them so that can be a little intense because not all of them like us by the time that we want to release them <laughs> it sounds intense yeah <laughs> it makes it a lot more difficult for us but it's a lot better for them to not like us when we go to release them and unfortunately we have to do a lot of what we call hard releases um i'd love to do soft releases but we just don't have areas to do that so as again we'll prep them for anything and everything that they're going to need in the wild, um, native foods they'll eat, um, but we also fatten them up just enough to make sure that they can survive till they find a really good food source. We don't want them so fat that they can't, you know, climb right. up trees or do things, run away, but we make sure that they're just fat enough. And the capture is always interesting. We always have just a couple of us in there that, that are all vaccinated. And we try different ways. We used to go in and just, you know, grab, have the big gloves on, grab them and put them in carriers. But over the years, that's gotten more difficult. So we lure them in with food. So we won't feed them the, the morning of release. And then we'll take carriers in and we'll put food in all the carriers. And most of the time, they all just kind of walk in the carrier for us. Uh, and then we just close it up but there's always that one or two that sees what's happening and as we take their friends away in the carriers they get a little nervous and they don't want to really go in the carriers so that just makes it a little bit more difficult where are you taking us <laughs> yeah <laughs> what happens with animals that you cannot rehab or release so maybe their injury is too significant or maybe there's a disease process that we can't cure or fix for them what what happens after that what do we do then 
So usually if there's something like that, if an injury is too severe or if like say they have parvo distemper or another disease that that is pretty much, uh, that's pretty impossible to get over, raccoons don't and skunks don't do very well with uh, parvo and distemper, especially when they're babies. Success rate in getting them through that is not very good and then they end up disabled. In order to preserve the rest of the animals, they have to euthanize them. I know it sounds harsh, uh, but unfortunately, that's the reality of, uh, of rehab. There's animals that we do have to euthanize. Of course. And, and it's humane. It's a terrible, yes. terrible disease. And so is parvo. It's a terrible Oh, yes. Disease. Yes. It's something that I um, we vaccinate for um, all of our animals that can get parvo and distemper. We always vaccinate and do boosters. Because uh, we just, we don't want it in our clinic whatsoever. Um, and then we also, just before they go outside, we vaccinate for rabies too. So once they're released, all of our animals that that could possibly get rabies are vaccinated for rabies. That's so that, cool. That's, yeah, that's an added protection for them, but also for, for the citizens. So are there some animals, Bethany, though, that could be relocated to some sort of uh, sanctuary, if you will, that would be you know, maybe they have a physical injury, right? It's not life-threatening, but, you know, they, they have a lameness or something like that, that it wouldn't be fair to release them in the wild, but they could certainly live a full life in a somewhat protected environment. Do you work with, with sanctuaries or protected lands where they might be released? Yep, actually we do. Um, there's, unfortunately, when we get a lot of animals in, um, their if their if their injuries are too severe, we don't have a lot that we do send um, because they either come in with really severe injuries or or illness, or they come in um, and we you know we can release them. Um, we've had let's see, we've had skunks with no tail uh, that we've ended up releasing. Um, we were able to um, to take out uh, to remove an eye so that we had we could release one of our skunks. Let's see, so we, I mean we can go to. Uh, a lot of lengths to get them out there. We did have one opossum. Uh, I'm trying to remember what year it was. I think it was 2016 or 17 that he was attacked by something and I really didn't think he would pull through, but we got him through and he was just a little thing. And by the time that we got him ready and, and healed up and we did physical therapy, we noticed that he could not walk properly with his front paws he would walk on like his pinky side and not flat. So he couldn't climb and he couldn't walk properly. So we ended up working with uh, Center for Wildlife and we got him down there for to be their ambassador. Uh, so if we do have animals like that, we always search out um, places where they could be ambassadors. So um, there's a place in New Hampshire that has that can take non-releasables. There's a couple places in Maine. So if it's something that that they are willing to take, then we definitely place them. It's I love that you put so much effort and so much love into this little guy and that he became an ambassador because I think it's so important for people to be educated about wildlife, whether it's your possum, your raccoon, your skunk, your squirrel. They're so important to our environment and our ecosystem. So I love that you I love that you love them. Oh, I, I'm I'm very passionate about all of our wildlife. Um, even the little mice, the, the field mice that come in. Uh, mm -hmm. We actually have a tank of, um, we have some of our mice here, we have domestic mice. So what happens is once we get closer to the season, we will have our mama mice ready to go. They, you know, they're pregnant, they're ready to go. And as soon as we get babies, wild babies in, we have our little mama mice that raise our wild babies because the, the success rate is so much better having an actual mouse raise a mouse instead of a human trying to raise a mouse. Wait, wait, wait. Um, so, and so she'll take on these orphans. <laughs> yeah, I have to gain, gain clarity here. So you you actually have domestic mice that act as foster moms, if you will, for little wild mice that come in and then yep. they, they feed them and get them big and healthy and strong and then you release the wild mice. Yep. Wow, cool. Yep. That's something that, because we used to try to raise them by hand. Uh, we had a, an amazing volunteer who worked on trying to raise them by hand. But it is, um, I think the success rate was like maybe maybe 20%. And it was like you had to get up in the night. You had to get up um, all hours of the day and night to feed them. And 
it does it takes a toll when you get in like a hundred mice throughout the the baby season. So we started thinking about well, what would happen if we tried this? Uh, and it we tried it and it worked amazing. It was just so perfect. Is there a lot of trial and error in your line of of work because this is kind of newish and you know like you're learning best practices as you go kind of thing? Well, I was pretty lucky when I started. Um, there was so much uh, groundwork already done. Uh, there's other rehabbers that there's three rehabbers. I think it was three that wrote um, this really amazing manual, and we call it our Bible. Um, it's a uh, it's a book that they write that they wrote on everything to do with wildlife rehab. So it has the different illnesses all the native species, well, the majority of the native species in Maine uh, or in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts. And it talks about the diseases, talks about medications, talks about um, how to feed them, how much, uh, what to feed them. I mean, it's basically a how-to book on rehab. Uh, and it's totally amazing. We have, since being, uh, since 2015, we have changed from that book a little bit. We've um, gone with um, some other some other things, because we do a lot of education. We actually educate, go to um, educational things to get better ourselves. So we, we're constantly trying to educate ourselves and trying to get better with what we do. So what does somebody do if they don't have the resources within their community or state? So I believe every state so far, I don't know about Hawaii or Alaska, but I'm pretty sure all the other states have some form of rehab. I know some states there are certain animals that there's no you you cannot rehab. And I think Iowa or Indiana is skunks or maybe Ohio, one of those areas you cannot rehab skunks whatsoever. So unfortunately, any skunk that comes in or that that gets called into a, a facility has to be euthanized if it's sick, injured, or orphaned, which is kind of sad, but understandable because that's that's how the state deals with. Because in the Midwest, it's more skunk rabies than raccoon rabies. And then there's some areas where you're not allowed to rehab fox at all because there's there's the fox rabies. Here, we have a wonderful network of wildlife rehabbers. And I don't know if this, you can usually go to any state website and look up wildlife rehabbers in any state. They Every state usually has a nice list of them. There's also a really awesome organization called Animal Help Now. Uh, you can get them online. They actually have an app you can download, and it will tell you wherever you are throughout the country what uh, where there is uh, wildlife rehabbers. We will put that in our show notes. That's great to know about Animal <laughs> Help Now. And not every rehabber is listed on there, but there's other resources too. If Say you go to Facebook and you look up, say you get a raccoon, you're in... New Jersey, you're like, I found a raccoon. I don't know what to do about it. It's just sitting on my lawn. It looks injured. I think it was hit by a car. You can go to Facebook and type in raccoon and there's groups there that can help you find help for that. There's a raccoon illness group and basically they help everybody all over the country if somebody's found an injured raccoon. And then there's the possum groups, the squirrel groups. So there's raccoon, raccoon rescue 911. That is a good one if you have any raccoons that ever need rescue across the country. You know, going on social media, going, you know, Googling, you know, wildlife rehab near me or what have you, even if that organization or facility or person can't help you, they are connected and can direct you to the group that can. And yep. so in this case, yeah, the, the internet is, is awesome in, in terms of that. Most people's first instinct is to hear, let me give you water, let me give you food or an animal that got run over by a car or something like that. People automatically want to give food and water. That's the worst thing that you could ever do for an injured, sick or orphan animal is to give them something because you're not sure um, if they're not warmed up, it can cause like the system shut down. If they're way too cold, you'd never want to give them food or water, or you might give them the wrong food or water. Mm -hmm. So the best thing to do is always, um, if you're able to contain them without touching them, as far as like barehanded, get them contained, keep them in the, in a nice spot where it's not too warm, not too cold, but a very quiet spot. And then as long as it's something that 
they are comfortable with. If it's a raccoon acting strangely, I, I highly recommend that they call us first before they go near the animal. But if it's an orphan squirrel, go ahead and pick that up with a, a fleece and some gloves, put it in a box, then they can call us. Because my worry is some of the smaller animals, people have called us before and said, well, I think, think an animal is orphaned. I'm not sure. They lose sight of it and then it's mm. gone. And then they find it deceased like a day later. So some animals, it's it's important to get contained as soon as possible and then call us. Some animals, it's best to wait and call us first and ask for advice on what to do. One thing I wanted to say too was, because I did read this, that touching a baby will not cause rejection by the no. mom. No. So don't I, freak out. I mean, you want to try to use gloves for your own safety and all of that, but I had always heard that. And that was a myth. That's a myth, right? That, yep. that if you touch them, that their mom will never take them back into her care. Yep. That's definitely a myth. Yeah. Um, I think I'm wondering if that was a myth from the old days where, so people would uh, make sure that their kids didn't touch anything that they weren't supposed to. <laughs> yeah. So it could be advantageous <laughs> to keep that myth uh, alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many myths about wildlife out there that um, sometimes I get very saddened and frustrated because, you know, somebody posts a beautiful picture of, say, a fisher online. And the first thing anybody says is, hide your cats, hide your kids, um, you know, hide your little dogs. And they're very vicious. And I, I'm like, no, not really. And their diet is actually very different um, from what people assume because they they hear Fisher cat and they automatically think that somebody's going that they're going to eat your cat, mm. but that's that's not true. There, I mean, if if there's a cat there and they're starving, I mean, anything would probably go ahead and just nab something quick if they're starving. Yeah. But the reality is that uh, fishers eat porcupines and squirrels. That's their top things, and they actually eat a lot of berries and nuts too. So they're not completely carnivorous. They eat a lot of a uh, variety of things along with coyotes. Coyotes get a really bad rap too. And they're one of my favorite animals to, uh, those and fishers are some of my favorite animals to um, rehab, but raccoons are my top favorite. <laughs> it's also worth mentioning that the Saco River Wildlife Center is a nonprofit. Let's emphasize that. So you're always willing to, you know, take help, like you said, on a volunteer basis, but also donations. Um, yeah. And all of these nonprofits survive solely on the donation of others. So please consider, you know, giving your uh, extra funds to them because they're doing great work. Yep. We, we're all um, not a 501c3 nonprofit and every ounce of our money um, that we raise goes right back into the wildlife. So Bethany, as we are wrapping up here, is there one thing you'd like to leave our audience with? Just to be aware and observe and try to learn uh, about the wildlife in your in your area so that you're not as afraid or concerned about things. Ask questions, reach out to organizations like ours if you have any questions. And we really encourage people to do the research on their wildlife in their neighborhood and uh, try to appreciate them, even if it's a groundhog, a skunk, or a chipmunk, just appreciate what they are and what you see, because you never know when when a species is just going to disappear from, it could be a disaster, a disease, habitat loss. You just never know when we're going to lose a different species. So appreciate everything that you have. I think that's wonderful. I like that. and, and I bet when people start researching too, they're going to have no idea about the variety of things yeah. in their own neighborhood, yeah. you know, because yep. we're all just living symbiotically or we should be, right? Yeah. To, to finish up, uh, Bethany, we always ask where people can find you. So what's the best way to to reach you and your organization? So we have uh, Facebook. Um, we also have a website. Um, and you can Facebook uh, message us anytime. We have uh, multiple admins on our page to answer questions. We have a telephone number, uh, which is 207-420-7159. We also have an email, uh, Saco River Wildlife Center at gmail.com. And then where you can find us also on Instagram, TikTok. I think that's it really for social media. It's wonderful, wonderful work you do. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. And we'd love to have you back again someday. Oh, I would love to. I'd love to be on uh, 
love to join you back on the show again. And I know there's so many organizations around every state that are always accepting volunteers. And, and I try to always, you know, promote other organizations and other rehabbers too. Great. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you so much. Oh, anytime. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on social media at Petability Podcast. And please check out our affiliates and sponsors. Simply go to the show notes for information and links. Thank you and tune in next time.